Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the program. We are live from Blastar Productions here in New York City, and you are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate. At this hour, tax abatements come in all shapes and sizes, and uh, when it comes to New York City real estate, it's always an episode. First, there is the 421A tax abatement program, which was shelved temporarily a while ago, but was recently brought back as the Affordable Housing New York program. This program gives tax breaks for all new developments. And then there is the J-51, which is a tax break for developers to renovate existing apartment buildings. The purpose of these tax incentives is to spur developers to develop on underutilized land and property to help support New York City's need for housing. But what happens when they expire? We will discuss them because they all do come up for expiration. Also at this hour, if there is something uh, New Yorkers seem to know a lot about, it's loss and longing of the real estate variety. Spend time at any dinner party and eventually you are sure to be regaled with tales of apartments bypassed that were worth millions of dollars, bidding wars lost, or maybe the biggest horror of them all, a rent-controlled apartment left behind for good. Tell us your story because we certainly will tell you ours. And also on this day, Good Morning New York remembers 17 years ago on the September 11th attacks here in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. But first, I'd like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. I am Vince Rocco, and you are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate as we begin our fifth season today. Yay, fifth season. Woo-hoo. Isn't that something? Where does time go? Yeah. Congratulations, so Vince. I know. Uh, well done, buddy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> An original right over there. Next <laughs> oh, wow. All right. In the news today, September 11, 2001, at 8.45 a.m. on a clear Tuesday morning, an American Airlines Boeing 767 loaded with 20,000 gallons of jet fuel crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center here in New York City. The impact left a gaping, burning hole near the 80th floor of the 110th-story skyscraper, instantly killing hundreds of people and trapping hundreds more on higher floors. As the evacuation of the tower and its twin got underway, television cameras broadcasted live images of what initially appeared to be a freak accident. Then 18 minutes after the first plane hit, A second Boeing 767 United Airlines Flight 175 appeared out of the sky, turned sharply toward the World Trade Center, and sliced into the South Tower near the 60th floor. The collision caused a massive explosion that showered burning debris over surrounding buildings and onto the streets below. It immediately became clear that America was under attack. A third plane hit the Pentagon just outside Washington, D.C., and the fourth plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania, almost 3,000 people were killed during the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which triggered major U.S. initiatives to combat terrorism and went on to define the presidency of George W. Bush. September 11, 2001 was the deadliest day in history for New York City firefighters. 343 were killed, and I personally will never forget that day as long as I live, as I instantly became thrown into the battle on the streets of Lower Manhattan. So, all of you, how do you remember September 11? It's a terrible day today. I was living three blocks away, and I'm actually one of those people that would have been on the NR train at Cortland Street at 8.45 a.m., but it was just a fluke. It was fashion week. I was helping my friend. I was in between projects, and uh, we couldn't go back for three weeks. Uh, when we did, you know, the landlords had offered us a $900 concession in rent, which would have been the fiscally responsible choice to make. But, um, you know, as they later came out, of course, there's asbestos in the air, the National Guard, all the tours, transportation was terrible. Um I personally am very affected by that, and it, it really gets me every year to think about it. Yeah, it's hard for me to read this every year, and it seems like we celebrate on a Tuesday, September 11th, um, yeah. just about every year with this program. So yeah. it's, it's interesting. You do hashtags today. <clears throat> Hashtag never forget, and may God bless America. Anyway, moving on, we have our panel here with us today. Season 5, as I said, Ari Harkop from Halstead Real Estate, Tracy Hammersley, Douglas Elliman, Phil Horrigan, Freely and leasebreak.com, Jordan Shea, Douglas Elliman, Niall Lundgren, Compass, Sean McPeak, Halstead, and a new guest today, Aaron Lucci from Douglas Elliman. Good morning to everybody. Good morning, Hi. Vince. Morning. Feels like the first day of school. It feels like the first day of school. again. It actually does feel like the first does day of school. I can't yeah. seem to wake up this morning. Standard. Standard, I know, really, my God. Anyway, let's talk about tax abatements. They come in all shapes and sizes when it comes to New York City real estate. As I talked about at the top of the program, first there is the 421A tax abatement that went away temporarily. 
but it was brought back recently as the Affordable Housing Act in the New York City um, real estate program. This program gives tax breaks for new developments. And then there's the J51, which is a tax break for developers to renovate existing apartment buildings. And the purpose, of course, for these uh, tax incentives is to spur developers to develop on underutilized land and property to help support New York City's uh, housing. So, I mean, I think they've done a great job through the years in developing underutilized land, converting uh, existing buildings. But now we're at the threat of these things, a threat, the uh, the end of a lot of these tax abatements. They're going away. Some are 10 years, some are 20, some are 25 years, depending on what program they fall under. All of us have sold in brand new condo developments. Some of us still represent brand new condo developments. The reason people buy, I think, first-time buyers especially, is because of these uh, tax incentives and it keeps your monthly costs down. But what do you hear out there from people who are about to expire and now the taxes, uh, their monthly taxes, annual taxes, however you look at it, will begin to go to fully assessed value and now, of course, your monthlies go up. Do you hear people wanting to sell or getting nervous or what's what's happening out there? I hear a bunch of things in a lot of my existing buildings and hopefully that turns into uh, the potential for listing. So I don't know what you guys are hearing out there. Well, I've seen that some of the some of the folks that I've I've done deals with that had um, abatements that are coming closer, not necessarily um, at at the full end of some of these abatements are twenty years. Um, so some some of them are saying, all right, maybe I should sell when there's five years left on the abatement to kind of get out, so they take the benefit of the assessment at the beginning. Um, it's not just for first time buyers. I think investors also. I've sold uh, to investors who want to buy that because you have better returns when you have less monthly payments and taxes, et cetera. Um, so people do want to get out um, at the at, at the end or close to the end of of the uh, of the term. I would imagine, and and again, uh, please chime in. But investors probably are the most at risk because, of course, they're always looking at their cap rate of return. Right their return on investment, et cetera. So when the taxes start going up or the monthly start going up, uh, they start wondering about, well, how is this going to produce for me going forward? I mean, I have an investor right now who's got about two years left on a property. And as Niall just said, is already thinking about, well, what do I need to do with this? Should I start selling? Should I sell now? I always say it's good to sell, uh, resell when you still have the abatement in place because it's an incentive for people out there, even if there's only a couple of years, you still can pass that on. It makes a big difference. Yeah. I actually just am representing right now. I'm just representing now a buyer in a situation where the abatement is expiring like right now, I think Mm -hmm. like even in February. So right when he would basically sign the contract, it was expiring. But when he was buying it, he was under the, you know, notion that it was going to stay at the price that he saw listed online. So it kind of like was a tricky situation. He was really annoyed that the price was going to be different. Right. So what, what the seller did, which I thought was really smart was they gave a sort of credit at closing. So like, you know, basically if the guy was going to hold on to this, the the place for five years, you know, it was like a $20,000 or something like that, you know, different. So I think that they gave him like 7,000 and that made it, you know, made it okay for him. Well, I'll just say one thing that's a little interesting is, so I have a few uh, sellers that bought 10 years ago in these tax abatements. And like we mentioned, the tax abatements are coming due now where the, the price is going up, uh, more and more taxes are being added each year. And the rental market hasn't done that well over the last 10 years. So these investors are looking at the rents and looking at how much their monthlies are going up. And I have to say, it's even disappointing for me to look to see that the returns were just not as good as some of these investors thought 10 years ago. Now, the sales prices have gone up a lot, but the rental income is just not as much as they thought, uh, given the uh, the tax abatement. Correct. And and what about when you're out there representing people who want to buy brand new condominiums? And, you know, in this town, everybody wants a brand new condominium you never lived in before. There are some buildings that don't have a tax abatement. I happen to be working in one that does have one because they broke ground in uh, mid-2015 before the original program expired. And so it's a true 421A. It's not an affordable housing situation. But there are there are buildings out there who don't have or that don't have tax abatements. How uh, inclined are your, your buyers to want to buy there? So does the newness kind of outweigh the, the lack of tax abatement or does it not? I mean, I think one of the things that's happened, obviously, with the abatements going away is I would say there aren't just some buildings, but actually most new developments now don't have abatements. And the other piece of the equation that you layer on is the tax reform that happened at the end of last year, which has now made the deductibility of taxes, obviously, is reduced it, such that the the cost of homeownership impact of the lack of tax abatements has actually gone up. 
And so one of the things I think we're finding with a lot of new developments that are stagnating on the market right now is that buyers are willing to pay the sticker price, but they can't afford the monthly payment. And they see the monthly payment compared to a resale that either has an abatement or has a lower basis overall because the city assessed the building for less value. And they say, you know, the, the gulf here on a monthly basis is enormous. And then, by the way, I've got this brand new rental building dangling over here and there are mm-hmm. only 14 concessions. So I think that's one of the main reasons why a lot of new developments are stagnating on the market in the kind of one to five million segment. I'd love to see, a, based on what you just said, I'd love to see a price per square foot analysis that takes that into account, that takes into account what the total cost is. That's a really interesting point. Like prices are down significantly is significantly in new construction. But when you take into account that the monthlies are a lot higher, it's interesting. It's probably not as down as people think. I actually have a real life test case of that. A buyer of mine just got an accepted offer at Waterline Square where he's willing to pay several hundred thousand dollars more than he would have had to at another new development that didn't have a tax abatement where he's got this 20 year tax abatement at Waterline Square. Mm. So like right there. The only uh, developments with tax abatements going up right now are kind of like in those newer areas, this kind of no man lands, like one Manhattan Square for instance, has a great tax abatement. Right. But it's 800 units and it's yeah. in the middle of nowhere. Right. In sending developers right. like the 80 develop. building. Correct. Right. Like exactly. City Point, you know, the well, there's a lot of downtown Brooklyn is uh-huh. huge. So they, they're basically, it's a land lease building, but they got a 25 year abatement. And if you look at how that building is performing as compared to other new developments in Brooklyn, the price per square foot is significantly higher. The absorption is better. They're on a less desirable block, but they have a 25 year abatement. Yeah. Correct. Right. That's a wonderful thing. All right, we've got to leave it there and take a break. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back after these messages. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their product. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back with Ari Harkoff from Halstead Real Estate, Tracy Hammersley from Douglas Elliman, Phil Horrigan, Freely and Lease, LeaseBreak.com, Jordan Shea, Douglas Elliman, Aaron Lachie from Douglas Elliman, Niall Lundgren from Compass, and Sean McPeak from Halstead Real Estate. Whoa, say that again fast. Good <laughs> Lord. All right, anyway, moving on. With many house hunters vacationing during the summer months, real estate agents have started to see the first signs of getting back in the market on the Upper East Side and several other neighborhoods where private School admission letters usher in a wave of house hunters. This is called private school bump. Began uh, this so-called private school bump began unfolding when private elementary and secondary schools sent out acceptance letters in uh, early February. One new condo development reported seeing a 15% increase in traffic during the weeks following the acceptance announcements. And several brokers say they have been spending more time on the Upper East Side. Have you guys been seeing this and why the Upper East Side in particular more than, you know, any other, you know, local neighborhood in our wonderful city here? I mean, private schools are important. Yeah, I mean, the Upper East Side is the biggest congregation of 
well-known and sought-after private schools in the city. I have clients right now who are um, cleaning up their Chelsea, beautiful, they have a beautiful townhouse that they're planning to sell to move to the Upper East Side because the girls have been going to school there for years and they're tired of doing the commute and they're ready to move. How much, though, does the, the, the need for a private school or any school in particular, a very good you know, public school, also up on the Upper East Side is PS6, which is a wonderful, right. you know, yeah. gifted and talented uh, program school or a lot of that. I mean, how much does that or, or the need for a school or being close to a school drive actual real estate? When I talk to people outside of this industry, they don't necessarily understand what that means. I think, Tribe- I think Tribeca is the best example of well, uh, the school district driving right. pricing. Yeah. And then also on the Upper West Side, uh, a couple months ago, I was completing a sale there, and they actually rezoned for two schools on the West End, West End Avenue. And so you had actually buildings and towers actually On one side of the street versus the other side of the street. Yeah, so we were were getting lowball offers based on the school district. And then we ended up selling the apartment to somebody who had enrolled their girls in private school. I I think that's everything for a lot of parents who choose to stay in the city instead of um, migrating to the suburbs. I think absolutely the decision of where they're going to live, it could be somewhere that they hate, but because it's got a great school, they'll make the sacrifice for their darlings. But you know, it's interesting because when you look at this stuff, and I don't have kids, but you look at this stuff, and I certainly have plenty of friends who do, you know, some of these tuitions for for schools uh, are equal to a lot of the college. Yes, we know. Definitely, right. <laughs> but a lot of to equal to college, to college tuitions. It's like you know what? What on earth? How do people start paying these tuitions? Oh, wow. from kindergarten through you know senior year in college. I mean, it's a lot. You are in it. What? How, how stressful is this? Or is it? How old are your children? Your just my my son's three and a half. I have a one and a half year old too. But oh, wow. he just started Heschel, which is private school on the Upper West Side, which is really interesting with that neighborhood. What's going on there with One West End and all these different buildings like that area is completely changing. I think because so many schools that are opening up there. But besides that, it is very stressful. It's like, I was talking to somebody yesterday who's in Florida and he was saying, you know, like he was talking to a friend who was in New York and he was saying, you know, well, I got this great, you know, they gave me this financial aid at this New York city school. And he's like, well, how much is the school? Cause the financial aid was 20,000. He was like, how much is the damn school? Why is financial aid is 20,000? You're excited. How much more are you paying? So it's literally college prices in New York. Yeah. It's just crazy. Ivy, Ivy League college prices. Yeah, it's just weird. <laughs> but but as so I said before, you know, you See, start really fifty grand for finger painting. <laughs> no, yeah, and, and they're in school from eight to two, like literally. Half day. I wouldn't pay. Half day. And no lunch. And no lunch. No lunch. Man. Agree. Agree. Right, you can do does, time anywhere. But the bottom line here, at least for our purposes or our listening audience today, I mean, it does drive the real estate industry in most neighborhoods. Yeah. Upper East Side being, of course, one of them, as I already said, a higher concentration of of uh, private schools, also the Upper West Side. So, I mean, you know, when you're out there looking and, and how, I mean, so are people willing to pay whatever it takes to buy an apartment in these districts or is it kind of like, well, I can't afford the, the apartment or, or and I can't afford the school. Mm. Something has to give here. I mean, I had a client say to me recently, the real estate is my tuition. So, you know, if you think about it, like 50K a year, whatever you're paying for private school, you multiply that over six years, K to five. So you're talking about $300,000 times two kids is 600K. Pre-tax income, that's a million dollars. Crazy. So you think about it that way, you do the rough math, and then you think, okay, I'll pay another couple hundred grand or whatever for the apartment, which, by the way, I will get back at the end. I don't get the tuition back. Um, You know, it's an investment. It's equity. You can't guarantee the kids are going to make that in salary. No, definitely not. (laughs) You know what it is for parents too in Manhattan? It's it's like the comfort of knowing that your kid is not so far from the apartment because you're not like in a suburb. You have, yeah, you have to correct. walk on the streets. Like it's yeah. dangerous. Absolutely. So like 15 minutes in a cab is a big difference than your nanny or you if you're whatever, you know, walking four blocks. It's just safer. Sure. So that's why people spend so much, I think. Yeah, and I guess when you when you have that that parent you know gene in you, and, and that's a very good point, Aaron, because you know you don't want your kids. I mean, I remember my my parents saying the same thing. I grew up in Yonkers for a bunch of years before we moved further upstate, and I had a walk to school, and it was not a very quick walk. I mean, it was you know twenty five minutes, which is a long walk yeah. for a six year old and a seven year old. When I think that mom let us yeah, out of the house, long. It's like see you later. And if I decided to detour, you yeah. know, and not go to school, I mean, who? I mean, right. you know. No one knows. I mean, it, it's kind of a crazy today. Of course, you know that that's a little out of it because the world GPS is just right. tracker. And now people who put their kids on school buses too. So I wish on school buses, but some of them don't have. But most of them, I see even little kids walking around with these cell phones today. And I guess it's a good way for parents to kind of check up on, hey, where are you? Not ready. What you doing? I know, but you're going to get there soon, right? Mm. 
you've got a few years. Yeah. Anyway, as the city looks to build its way out of the costly housing market, one stretch of western side of Manhattan from 14th Street to Chelsea to Columbus Circle has been the epicenter of this effort. That community district has added about 28,000 units of housing, double the number of new digs in any other neighborhood between 2000 and 2016, according to a report um, slated to come out uh, this week. Yet cranes seem to be largely catering to the highest earners. Renters in new buildings in 2016 had median income uh, incomes almost one-third higher than all renters citywide, this report's going to say. And amid an era of great demand for more affordable accommodations, Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen have seen more of their apartments go unused. The rental uh, vacancy uh, rate increased from 3.9% uh, in 2010 to 6.6% in 2016. Uh, and all of that has led to some debate about whether the city's effort to encourage residential construction can create benefits that trickle down to the lower end of the rental market where competition seems to be fiercest lately. So what do you see there? I mean, Phil, on the rental side, I mean, you know, uh, vacancy rate 3.9% uh, in 2010 to 6.6% in 16 in Hell's Kitchen and in Chelsea. It's in just in those markets. It's not an overall, right? No. What's well, a higher vacancy just, rate just overall than it's been in years, yeah. but not the 6.6 .6 across the board? Six, no, no, no. Well, just that, that's just in those, those two, two neighborhoods. Oh, okay. Just in those but I was a little taken aback, a little surprised, rather, for Chelsea. Hell's Kitchen, I can kind of understand, but but Chelsea, it's it's such a you know <clears throat> in-demand marketplace. What is the source for that? I'm just curious, Vince, do you know? Uh, I don't have that here, okay. but I can let you know. The no, line. just because that does seem a little high. Uh, it, it seems uh, it's I don't true. Know, but there's a long inventory in the Hell's Kitchen, like West 37th. You yeah. know, 505 West 37th was the first building yeah. that, that actually had that. You're saying Chelsea, too, though. Yeah, yeah I, I that's bet that sounds too high for Chelsea. Chelsea's in there pretty hot. Far west Chelsea. I mean, I, I actually do think that this is debunks, and we've seen this year after year, this like mentality of uh, if we build it, they will come. Mm. Yeah. Is, wow. is not is not the case, and it hasn't been the case for over a decade. It's, these far west projects are very difficult because the infrastructure isn't there, and the transportation the isn't there. You and cross sharing. To Long Island City. Exactly. Yes, LIC, just like you and me. <laughs> <laughs> not happening. There are a lot of new condos in Chelsea, in particular, both the far west as well as more central, that have just bought by a lot of investors. So there have been a lot of rental units flooding. The market as but, well. but I mean, to Jordan's point, I mean, you know, build of the name will come. I mean, it's just that we've heard that for, for many, many years. And so there was a time when that was possible. You build it anywhere. But now people are getting a little more selective. We talked about schools. We talked about the far west where there aren't really a lot of transportation lines. But then again, look at Hudson Yards, right? So Hudson mm -hmm. Yards is building like crazy, selling like crazy. The price per square foot over there is out of control. It was I mean, until recently. I don't know. Is, is it calmed down a little bit? I mean, I don't. I haven't been there. You can't. You can't really make any more investor deals over there. They're pretty tapped out on investor units and the condo. Well, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, but, I mean, but for I, people wanting to live there. The, to me, the biggest difference between when I started in the business in 2004 and now is people's willingness to go to all these different neighborhoods. I mean. People, when I started in the business, it, 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 it's amazing. Certain blocks. Right. Yes. Uh -huh. I want to do yes. second and third. Yes. You know, very specific. Right. Manhattan is true. But it's also like, I mean, Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights were neighborhoods you, you literally would just not even yeah. go there. That, that's just yeah. And now the people yeah. are, I mean, I see a six and a half million dollar deal in Bed-Stuy. Yeah. How many square feet is that? It's like a double wide, uh, double wide townhouse to mansion. Oh yeah, that was a huge yeah. number. I think yeah. too the anomaly with Hudson Yards is that they were also putting in so much office space. And mm. as you see, like the way that retail has shifted, that that was sort of the basis by which a lot of these new developments used to be constructed. Right. Retail in the bottom, and then you put in the store, and then people will come. And the issue is retail has completely changed because buying behaviors have changed. Mm. But people still have to go to offices by and large for the most part, and that's not changing until. Every industry is thoroughly digitized, and we can live on the moon. But I mean, until then, they have to build the offices because the talent's here. The talent wants to live here. I mean, well, that's, that's why Hudson Yards has such right. a higher selling rate for the far west projects because they're so heavy in the office. It's also sector. new and it's hype. I mean, there's that too. Yeah. Well, but but I think Niall said it before. You know, in the very beginning, you know, people and I remember 16 years ago, a little more than you, Phil. But you know, starting in this business, everybody had a defined, specific this mm -hmm. block, this street, this school, this train system, whatever. 
Now, it, I think it, it's more apartment-driven mm-hmm. and deal-driven. And deal-driven, exactly. It's not just the apartment. It's where the deals can be found. So that's why people are more better to going, out, in a yeah, going to different areas. We've talked about this before. I think it's also yeah, like the homogenization, yes. homogenization of the retail landscape in New York. Like every neighborhood has a Whole Foods, a right. Trader Joe's, yeah, a Mayor yeah. Burger, a 14 Chase Bank, 7 so Starbucks. Like anchor so tenants. The West Village are like 60th and 2nd, and it's not that different from in terms of like the, the shops and restaurants and things that I can go to. And right. also like what Brooklyn has shown, like how it's changed so quickly and all those little neighborhoods have become so popular. So Rapidly. people are like open to see, okay, like maybe I'll check out Williamsburg if you can find me this, this, and this, and this. You know? They check it out for a year or two and then they move to a different neighborhood. Right. You know, okay. People are more flexible now. Mm-hmm. Apartment driven, deal driven, I buy that. That's it. So we've got to leave it there. We're live from Blastar Productions here in New York City. This is Good Morning New York. We will continue on the other side of the break. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. We are back, and Anna Shagalov from Halstead has just joined us. Terrible Hello. train traffic today. Good morning. Terrible train traffic. So, well, let's talk about post-closing liquidity requirements, and this, this applies probably more so for co-ops than it does for condo, but in some cases, condos are getting a little more wacky in their requirements. This is the amount the board of directors and your lender want you to have. After you close on your unit, you need to check what the board considered a liquid asset since the definition varies by building. And this is really important when you're looking at financial statements uh, and you're reviewing with your managers and, and, you know, some buildings require certain things and some, you know, buildings say this is liquid and this is not liquid. So you got to be careful with that. Certainly cash and money market funds will qualify while government securities, corporate bonds and stocks typically count since you can convert these into cash readily. It gets murkier when it comes to your retirement accounts. Now, do you guys consider retirement accounts and 401, uh, 401k accounts liquid or not? I do. No. I mean, it shouldn't be, but yeah. I think it depends on the age of the um, applicant. If you're vested, yes. If not, no. Generally, the board counts these as liquid assets, so the, according to this report, although they may decide so they to give you a certain amount of... <laughs> no, it's not reality. Certainly, in some con- uh, co-ops, it's absolutely not Case reality. by case. I've right. never heard of a co-op that counts. No, I've that. never heard of that. So that, that report might not be quite Additionally, accurate. the board of directors is likely not going to consider any real estate you own in their calculations. Why? The definition of liquidity is something that you can access cash from within 24 to 48 hours, right? So real estate doesn't fall into that category. And on the, on the 401k side, you have to pay a penalty if you liquidate it early, typically mm-hmm. 10%, plus you have to pay taxes because it was put in as pre-tax money. So you, you knock 40, 50% off the value at the beginning, so it's not really a liquid asset. No one's going to no one's gonna liquidate their 401k early unless they're under very, very desperate circumstances. And you right. certainly can't take cash out of the closet in your walls in your home just okay. as to put a deposit down or to set <laughs> a bill. May be able to. Well, some people may. The people <laughs> argue with me all the time. I'm worth X amount of dollars because my apartment that I'm not selling is worth a million five. And I tell them all the time, well, you can't take a million five out of the walls if you keep still want to keep this apartment. Right. But it's an overall asset, but it's not a liquid asset. Big difference. Go ahead. Right. Well, I did a deal um, not too long ago where the the uh, buyers were a little bit older. They were about two and a half years away from retirement, so and they were light on liquidity. So obviously, in that case, it counted. But you can't you can't count on the board to kind of get that on their own. So there was a big letter 
of introduction and and you have to kind of spell it out because you, you can't you can't just hope for the best you have to be very very clear you cannot and as Ari just said a little while ago and this is probably the most important thing is you know with with certain um, assets you know 401k and retirement plans you will pay a penalty to liquidate and some people use this as down payment money even though they're willing to pay a, a, a penalty but how do boards look at that when you're taking from you know retirement savings and using it as a down payment so what do they think immediately because co-op boards will start thinking about all kinds of things it, it can be a loan. may not qualify well it could be a loan or it could be just a, a cash out and, and a penalty pay I've had this before it's it's kind of confusing actually where you borrow from your 401k and then you owe your 401k money Correct. and the question's always is it a debt? How do you show it on the financial it statement? It is, but it's like a de- like a loan to yourself. It's it's, it's kind of cute. It's not it's not as much of a debt as say a mortgage would be, you know. But it is it is something you owe. It is something you owe, and if you don't pay, there's I guess a penalty for it. You know? So how so how so how much do you all? Um, I know I look at you know uh, liquidity of of buyers. Almost in the begin from the very beginning, like I ask several questions. Sometimes it depends. I'll even give them a, a financial statement to fill out because I just I wanted to make that. sure that before we start the process, because everybody says I can afford this. Everybody says I can get a mortgage. Everybody says, oh, I'm not worried about the co-op board. I'm very, you know, passable, whatever. And then you put pen to paper and you realize, well, not really. And so everybody's time is wasted on only yours, but the buyers, more importantly. Well, you have to be careful because the banks will always overqualify people because they don't they don't factor in the co-op board approval. Big so clients. yeah, so it, the the post close liquidity, all of that, it, you have to kind of scale back from what the bank tells you. They want to loan you as much as they can these days. Yeah, and the the, the problem with the yeah. banks, from from what I see, you know, regularly, is they're very quick to pre-approve, and that gives the buyer the the impression that okay, I'm pre-approved, I can go out and I can do everything. It's kind of like you know the bravado out there. I'm going to go out and buy whatever I want to buy. Well, you know, then you go for real qualification, and a lot of this stuff comes up, and it doesn't apply, or or they they don't have enough to to make it for application. Well, I mean, it's always a good idea, besides you can kind of pre-qualify them yourself, that if you were to have them speak to a mortgage professional as well, either someone that they bank with or someone that you could recommend. But I also like to prepare my buyers that if they're going to be cutting a little close or if the boards are not being so, if they're not just advising exactly kind of the requirements, you need to have at least 24 months, et cetera, or some, you know, they like to see $500,000 or half the purchase price or whatever, that you might be prepared to have to put some maintenance in escrow. How about when you don't know a building, you've never sold in the building before and the listing agent is not being helpful uh, because they don't, they don't know. know. <laughs> right. How do you kind of figure out what the the, the post liquidity should be? Because uh, as we said at the, the, the beginning of this, every building is different. Every building has different requirements. Some really don't care. Uh, few and far between, but there are some that do care. And, and if you've never sold in a building before, or you can't get the advice of the the listing agent for whatever there's reason, two, there's what two things you, you can do. You can you can call management, or you can call someone who's done some closings in the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, people will give you a, a real answer when you when you call them. And I always err on two years. I always err on two years of uh, mortgage insurance. I do too. Yeah, yeah. two if years is general is conservative. General, rule of thumb. Yeah, I'm actually going to a meeting that. about this right right after the the podcast today, and <clears throat> we're talking to the 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 seller of this apartment who's, that's had several maintenance increases on a land lease, and uh, we want to have a meeting with their board of directors to try to see if we can get the post closing liquidity requirement lowered because the building's value has taken a significant hit in the last like three months. All this summer. So. Interesting. When does the land lease expire? Uh, 2068. Oh, so it's got so a while to go. I'm going to try to pull a LFP, uh, Louise Phillips Forbes, and go. <laughs> right. You you want to get a mortgage, but yet you don't necessarily qualify on your own. Can you get a co-signer, and will the co-op board be okay with that? Again, awesome. a lot of people think, okay, I can do this and that. I have enough money to do whatever, but you don't always have uh, what you need to get passed by a co-op board. So co-signers sometimes become a problem. And then, who is that co-signer? Is it a parent? Is it a friend? Is it someone you're buying the apartment with? If you're, if you're co-purchasing, then it's right. okay. The problem is when you're, say, not co-purchasing, or at least you're... In, if you're figuring it's a non-occupant co-borrower, so the person is not going to live with you, but they're just going to co-borrow on the loan to help you get that loan so you can close and move in. In a co-op? In a co-op. Depends on the board, right? I mean, the whole idea is obviously a board prefers someone who can stand on their own and has a, can stand on their own financial merit, but there are plenty of buildings that will allow parental or otherwise assistance to back you up financially. 
mean, in theory, from a rational perspective, it should actually be better because the board has more people to go after in the case of financial insolvency. But in practice, boards look at it as sort of like, you know, um, you get get into issues of like age discrimination and all kinds of things that happen because boards look at them as if you can't pay your own bills, what other issues are we going to have with you? And certainly, correct. And, and certainly with first-time buyers, you know, a lot of them do have their parents, you know, uh, or other relatives co-sign on the loans because they're first-time buying. And again, some boards are okay with that. Some boards are not. They don't allow parental involvement, you know, so you've got to really be, uh, be careful with that. Moving along, escalation clauses. Escalation clauses usually come into play when the buyer's agent tells the seller's agent an offer is coming and the seller's agent says there is interest from several buyers. Okay, this gets tricky. The buyer's agent would then recommend that the buyers include an escalation clause with their offer. In a competitive real estate market, some buyers will use an escalation clause when an apartment they want is likely to get into a bidding war. Even though we're in a buyer's market, that's not necessarily true for lower-priced apartments where... There's still uh, uh, often, often uh, multiple buyers interested. The purpose behind the clause is to automatically increase an offer each time someone makes a higher offer, so the first buyer has a better chance of winning. The I don't know where we stand relative to the offers, but do me a favor. Um, whatever, you know, let me know. Whatever the highest bid is, I'll give $5,000 more. I just want to say, like, my strong suggestion is you should never accept that deal because, first of all, one of the one of the concepts of the beauties, I should say, of a bidding war is you get the highest possible price for your seller. And this buyer that's willing to say, just give $5,000 more, may be willing to actually give $20,000 more or $50,000 more. So you really should never say to somebody, no problem, wink and a nod, I'll just attack on $5,000 to the highest offer and it'll go to you. That's yeah, I don't. I don't see that being a viable strategy. How it's going to help the seller. How often do do you all? I mean, I do this sometimes because sometimes your buyers will give you an answer. Sometimes they won't. But in fact, believe this or not, I was just involved in a bidding war last week in a very expensive apartment, three and a half million dollars. It went way. My buyer was way over the asking price. And it went way over hours, okay? In a neighborhood and in a building that I still scratch my head and think, well, you know, where is this world coming to? And, again, in this particular market, lost, okay, done. So, I kind of knew where my buyer wanted to go ultimately, okay? And we had an agreement. I could, instead of calling him, he's a very high-level executive, instead of calling him routinely, Vince, I trust you, here's the most I will go. So, I was that's not an escalation clause, but the, I was able to do based on my conversation with my buyer. But how many of you have that opportunity? Because I think if you can do that, that's a great thing because you save a lot of time. And the broker on the other end was like, how come you're coming back so quickly? With numbers? <laughs> you got to wait at least two hours. Well, well of course I did. But, but I mean, it's like, but but it, you know, he's like, well, what's going on here? And I, we want the apartment. This is, you know, this is what we want, and this is our price. And at the end, you know, we still lost. It, it, it's it's amazing. So not to digress, but how many bidding wars are you all looking at these days? Are you talking about bidding war or best and highest? Because those are two distinctly different things. Best and highest. Well, well, yeah, sort of. They're not. They're not. We didn't get the opportunity to do best and highest, though. It was just, what's your number? And well, I think the highest and best is a type of bidding war. But you're suggesting like there are other types, right? A, a war, a well, that's why multiple bids okay. when you have so many. Let me explain the difference. Go ahead. <laughs> a bidding war is when people um, know the bids, and they'll go up 5,000, 10,000. They'll just keep going, keep going, keep going. Best and high, and, and that's Fair that's enough. that's okay. bad blood. And at the end of the day, the the person that wins the bidding war is probably not going to feel good about it because they've been bid up. A best and highest is when it's closed bidding, it's sealed, and people actually end up paying way more than they would in a bidding war because they need to outnumber somebody that they have no idea where the other people stand. So best and highest. Against yourself, sometimes they say, right? Exactly. I had a, a, a recent uh, experience with this where it was like best and highest, but then the broker on the other side hated <laughs> the actually winning broker so badly that because it's just a terrible broker and personality mucked up the deal. And she said, I don't believe that this ultimately their number makes zero sense. And she goes, we're well, actually, I've advised my clients to take yours and your 25 
thousand less than the highest and highest or highest bid, but mm-hmm. when you get a board that's organized and has their stuff together and you know they're not gonna be stupid. Well exactly yeah. she ultimately went with us because yeah. she knew we would close and she didn't exactly. the other guy. You can also have the best and highest and other brokers kind of ignore that and keep going after another <laughs> an offer offer is accepted. We had something that we just closed on last week Called that um, two two of the brokers um, went up by fifty grand over our asking or over our accepted offer and we did not we didn't take it we stayed with our our um, we have to leave it there uh this is good morning new york on the voice america variety channel we're coming right back after these messages so don't go away the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. We are back on our last segment. So, uh, New Yorkers seem to know a lot about its law. The real estate variety. Spend time at a dinner party and eventually you you are sure to be regaled with tales of apartments Bypass now with millions of dollars, bidding wars lost, or maybe the biggest horror of them all, a rent control apartment left behind for good. This is known as the one or a few that got away, right? So I think we probably all, those of us who have bought and sold apartments here in this town, we have all probably, I mean, I can probably give you five stories, which I won't today, but I mean, of big mistakes that I made in real estate, I should have bought, didn't buy, you know, should have held on to it longer than I did and sold it too fast, whatever. But it's true. When we all go out to meet friends and dinner parties and stuff, family, whatever it is, everybody's favorite topic is real estate. So, And I love hearing some of the stories because it reminds me of some of the mistakes I've made. And there's always that one that is lost. Any personal stories? I mean, like the one your mother didn't let you buy in Tribeca? <sighs> yeah, that oh, my story. God. Okay. Well, that, that's one of them. She looked at the cobblestone streets and said, outside of Bubby's, what's wrong with her? <laughs> <laughs> she wow. said, wait, what, what's this? You, but you, you know what's can't happened? find a Mormon here. I feel like my generation. Millions of dollars more. I feel like my generation, at least, like I've heard you guys, like Vince and my mom are very good friends. So, like, I've heard you guys talk about this stuff. So, I've been impacted positively because I'm like, okay. This is what I should do. This Front is what I should do. That's and right. it's like I've made, I feel like some good, 
you know, decisions because of that. So it's kind of interesting to see because you guys were like the, I feel like the first one came in and like really started flipping and doing all these interesting things. Before that, it was, you know, that didn't really happen. Dull and boring. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Leave it to Vince to bring some spice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the flipping was was really what was the best. But but the the market's changed so much in the last 20 years, you know, you didn't have opportunities to make returns like this. uh, Right. You know, prior to, you know, you, you, you really didn't. And and in the 90s, you know, when I was doing in the mid-90s up to about 2000, it was, you know, a feast. You know, you can buy, you can sell, you can sell in six months, you can sell in a year, and you're always going to make money. But there were a few of those, even you, Anna mentioned one of them, that I didn't buy because my mother thought, well, this is a <laughs> terrible neighborhood. And I thought, you know, that's probably the one of two that got away that I always go back and think about. And every once in a while, I'll look it up and see, you know, how much it's worth and how much it traded for. You still for. track it? it? Oh. I absolutely. I was, <laughs> million, millions of dollars. I think we've all had uh, deals killed by someone's, like, mothers or roommates. Okay. Well, she just came down with my sister to have brunch with me, and so it happened to be in the neighborhood that I was Nightmare thinking time. about buying it. Uh, <laughs> well, don't we all have the same problems with uncles? and yeah, cousins and mothers and fathers and girlfriends exactly. and boyfriends and whatever. I mean, it's like the person you show. Um, Bushwick with my mom, she had a heart attack. Yes, I know. An actual heart attack. <laughs> she couldn't stop talking about it. It was like the topic of conversation anywhere I went. Like, can you believe my daughter and her two children are in Bushwick? You need to speak to Erin. I said, no, six months I'm not going to do that. Yeah, she wanted everyone to speak to me, but like I ended up, it was a good investment. It worked out. I mean, I sold it. So. Uh, Absolutely, and and so that's those are the kind of pioneer things that even today you can be in newer neighborhoods. <clears throat> it doesn't always work out, but in some cases it does. All right, Airbnb, my favorite hot button topic. My landlord caught me renting my unit on Airbnb. Says people, right? Mm-hmm. There are multiple laws on the books that make it difficult to legally rent your apartment through Airbnb in New York City. So the first thing you should do is familiarize yourself with those laws says an attorney who represents residential and commercial tenants and tenant associations. So how many buyers do you meet in the course of a year that still say to you, I want to buy an investment property and I want to put it on Airbnb? I mean, I get that at least once or twice a year. Well, there you go, daily. I've helped people people in co-ops get rid of Airbnb. uh, Co-ops? Yeah, I've got, um, I've helped people set up their Airbnbs of interior, (laughs) you know. There's there's 129 fines that got, actually paid last year and 30,000 violations and citations handed out. So there's, there's no enforcement for it. I mean, it's a free for all. Can you get evicted? Can you get evicted? Let's take a you gotta look at your lease. If you're running an illegal hotel, the way you get caught is if you have multiple units in the same property. So sometimes the landlords are actually mad because you're raining on their parade because they already have units in their buildings wow. and major landlords because they can't beat them. They're joining them. So it, that's that's probably something that people don't talk about. It's not just individuals who are who are doing this. It's actual like, you know, institutional and, landlords. And one of the buildings I sell in all the time, there have been a couple of instances where you know uh, owners have gotten caught, you know, trying to do this. One in particular, the board started the eviction process to to get her out of the building because she just refused to listen <clears throat> to the, the the house rules. To the New York City rules, to the the, the condo's uh, attorney speaking to her, she just continued to do it, and so she finally stopped because I think she realized she was going to get thrown out. But all I say to that is, if you're buying a townhouse or if you own a townhouse and you've got apartments in there that you want Airbnb, go have a party. You can do that. No one cares. It's private ownership. It's your home. But if you live in a co-op, you live in a condo, you cannot. Also, people living in rental buildings, typical New York City rental buildings, and they will turn around and say, "Well, I'm going to be gone for three months, or I'm going to be." gone for a month and they'll airbnb i mean you know and then they 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 wonder when they get asked to leave or they get thrown out it's not allowed and you know it's becoming quite the spectacle in this town it's a it's a it's so accepted anywhere else and i know phil you and i've had debates about this but it's so accepted in so many other places because you can but in urban cities like New York, you can't do this. No, and I, I would say, like, so aside from the law, which is a problem that we've already discussed, there's the issue of the landlord vetted a tenant. Why then should that tenant be able to just put someone else in the apartment? It just doesn't seem fair. I mean, if you're going to get a car lease, if you go to, the, if you rent out a car, it's kind of obvious that you can't just rent it out to someone else, right? I mean, so. That's it, a new business, though. 
It, 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 yeah. But if you if you were to, I don't I don't know that new business you're referring to, but if you were to rent, so if you were to rent out a car, you, know, you have to be the one on the license. You have to be the one. Your name has to be the one driving the car. You know, it's kind of obvious in that sense. What if you have a What if you have the permission to sublet from the landlord? Doesn't that mean that sublet? Absolutely different. Yeah. Well, no, clarify that because what I mean is yes, Airbnb are two different things. No, right. What I'm saying is that if you have if you have permission to sublet from the oops, sorry, I think if you have I think you have permission to to do this from the landlord, you should be able to do it. New York City shouldn't be able to stop you. But the problem is that like people are walking in and out of buildings with luggage. Like that's the main issue. That's like it feels like a hotel. That's the problem I think people have in the building. And they're, and they're not absolutely the actual that's apartments. the biggest problem and that's in the building I was referencing before I would sit there on open house Sunday and see people wheeling and then somebody coming out and giving them towels and I yeah. said to the doorman <laughs> what doesn't feel like a community it's true it's true but there's a lot of people that, there's a lot of places where it is sanctioned by landlords and the only thing that they can agree on is the law so uh, well, I think, I think right. there's, a, there's a lot of Airbnbs in New York City. I mean, you go on the website. Oh, of course they are. They can't all be in disagreement. I mean, people right. pay their landlord cash on the side to do this. I think it's fair. If everyone's cool with it, I think just let them, you know, let them, you know, let the free market decide what happens. Yeah. But there's the situation in my beautiful still new condo where we had someone who was airbnb when you on the third floor got bed bugs. So we got that owner out of the building. Wow. Yeah. Wow. They got bed bugs. There. Well, there's a good reason to yeah. get them out. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. I mean, you know, listen, oh, th- th- this is New York City, as we say about everything in this town, anything is possible, exactly. and anything and everything does happen. So, <laughs> and I have buyers saying, does happen. I have buyers who want duplexes so that they can rent out one of the floors, which I think that's the most amazing thing wow. I've ever heard. Like, I that's think that's think really there. cool in New York City. I, I, I love when I travel. I love bed and breakfast over hotel any day. Absolutely, and uh, I, I think you live in somebody's place. apartment, like on one, like on their floor. Yeah, I mean, if you ever go to a bed and breakfast, so. it's like one of the best ways to learn like where you're traveling. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, they, and a lot of beachy towns, and I've done that too. I mean, they're they're really they're really awesome. Um, you know, they and they they'll serve you breakfast in the morning. Obviously, bed and breakfast. So you you get up, and you've got a private room, and there are other you know rooms on the floor, and then you go downstairs, you have your breakfast, and you're off for the day, and you can learn. But Airbnb has kind of taken that you know a step further, and then now renting out the whole house and 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 doing whatever. Just one more thing, for saying. So I I understand the point that like, hey, if the landlord says it's okay, then you should be able to do it. But ultimately, everyone in the building should understand what's going on because you don't you don't buy into a building necessarily thinking that people are going to be in there different people every day so it's not fair to, to those people now if you buy into a building where everyone understands who's entering to that essentially that contract that there's going to be people that are staying here you know overnight different mm-hmm. people they're going to be airbnb fine but everyone has to be on the same page otherwise it's just just not it's just not fair i mean i think the real thing is that there's money involved because i would see very little distinction for a unit level for a unit level where I have I am allowed to have 20 friends come and visit in 20 consecutive days and nobody in the building can stop me there's no exchange of money like the actual fundamental question is how do I get paid is the problem of other people don't take home cash He's and it's a I really think alright guys we are at, well it's a very good point we're out of time that's it for me today that's our show thanks to my guests and panel as always always remember how wonderful life is while you're in this world Elton John and Bernie Taubman thank you for that never forget be kind to one another for all of us at Voice America all around the world thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time goodbye everybody Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.